when good things happen, people often will say, oh, you know, well, that must have been according to God's plan or really, really horrible things happen. Sometimes people say, well, we just can't see what God's plan is in this, but there must be one. Um, I don't believe that. Uh, I think that God, God's, if God has a plan, it's to maintain relationship and be with us through whatever the world throws at us. And the way to build your faith is not by nailing everything down to a right answer. The way to build your faith is by wondering. And um, I just find that so powerful. Seekers, welcome to Mysterious World. I'm Stuart Palm, and uh, it's mid-November. Um, I've actually attempted to make this introduction before, so this you'll you'll hear that in a minute. I'm gonna um, at when I'm done talking now, I will play for you my introduction from I don't know two months ago during mid-autumn. Uh, which is a festival, the Mid-Autumn Festival is a festival here in Hong Kong. And uh, I don't know, I go through ups and downs in my life, and I've been having a hard time getting uh, the next podcast out. And I think a lot of that negative that I was holding on to was affected by the American election. Which, as I'm sure you all are are well... Uh, steeped in is has been crazy it's a, it's a time of uh, craziness and i want to begin at the at the door here saying to remember that you make your own reality and that means that uh, while you might be completely terrified by the prospects of the future with a trump presidency as i was when it first happened i went through that uh, adjustment like someone died after the election. That sort of denial and uh, anger, all of those um, levels of mourning. And uh, and then I came out on, on the other side of it and went, wait a minute. Let's look at this as a period of change. People will come together. And uh, they will come together to make sure that what he brings and what whatever the administration he puts together brings doesn't destroy all that is great about America. Ironically, his uh, Make America Great Again platform seems to uh, be a good focal point. Let's make America great. I mean, I, I know I'm not living there, and that makes it hard, but I still do vote, and um, I'm still involved. 
And um, it's good to remember that you have control. If you if you take if you take the perspective, which I believe to be the true perspective, that you create your own reality on on almost every level, you could say on every level, then you're responsible for uh, creating the world you live in, and you can't step outside or step back from that and blame other people anymore. So if you want change, change. Do it. And the only way you can do that is by changing within. I know I'm getting a little um, deep here, but this is called Mysterious World. And my God is not a mysterious world right now. It is amazing. Donald Trump will be the president. I, I, uh, I have long been a fan of movies and sci-fi where people travel in time and the paradox inherent in thinking about time travel. And I am uh, taking this, the belief right now that what's happened is someone has broken in, into the ability. They've broken the space time continuum. They are able now to travel in time because really, if you think about it, time is a construct of our, um, perspective on life. And, um, somebody's figured that one out because how else can you describe this happening? How else does it make any sense that Donald Trump is president? I saw people, um, posting, I reposted a, a clip from the second back to the future where there's the character Biff who becomes the head of the town and, seems to be taking on a very Trump-like persona. It's quite entertaining. So the episode, the interview that I have for you today, I recorded uh, Father's Day, so June. So we're real behind. I'm sorry, guys. But actually, don't uh, despair. There will be another episode soon following because I've already recorded um, an interview with Lynn Buchanan. And Lynn Buchanan um, was a member of the Stargate group um, part of the CIA um, performing remote viewing, and he's going to talk to us about remote viewing. It's quite fascinating and a little controversial. If you'd like to help me bring more Mysterious World podcasts to light and to life, you can do so by going to mysteriousworldpodcast.com. That's www.mysteriousworldpodcast.com and clicking the donate button. You can go and uh, choose either to donate on a monthly basis or you can do a one-time donation and any price, any, any little bit helps. So um, thank you for people who've donated already. It's helped me um, get some better equipment and better things through that. And uh, we can get these more, more to you. Um, also, if you have uh, interests in different people that you think would be good uh, guests you can go to the mysteriousworldpodcast.com and make suggestions, or you can uh, email me uh, through the same site, or you can send me a message on Facebook um, or Twitter. I am at Stuart Palm and all social media things. And uh, yeah, it's all appreciated. My sister is the subject of today's show, the Reverend Adrian Dawson. Um, she is an Episcopal priest. So she spends her days 
helping people and guiding them spiritually. And um, she guides people through births and deaths and um, mourning periods. And right now she's guiding her congregation through the transition of power in the United States and the divisiveness that's been created because that it's a bit intense right now. She helps people um, get married. She marries people. She helps families with deaths. So there's a lot uh, to her life that relates to the things that I talk about on this podcast because there's a God involved. And what I think is really important in her being a part of this is that um, she's a voice of Christianity that you don't hear as often in, in the popular media. And what I mean by that is that normally you hear really fundamental screaming voices about stuff that have nothing to do with Christianity as, as far as I can tell. Usually you hear from people who seem like wackos. And so many people who don't have a faith in particular or a spiritual following will write off any one Christian as uh, stupid or unintelligent. And those are two things you cannot describe my sister with. She, um, she does understand that the stories of the Bible are metaphors and the stories are there to guide, just like metaphors that I use when I'm um, giving a, a hypnotherapy session to help someone um, stop eating sugar or quit smoking or um, make changes in their own life. And so we are, uh, in the long term, working on a book together. We are working on a book um, that will show the two sides um, of our lives. And it'll be interesting because she lives in one side of the planet in the United States, in, the, in Maryland. And I live in uh, Hong Kong, in Asia. And um, I work as a performer, but also as a hypnotherapist. And so while I help people, I also entertain people. And I do it all um, using sort of um, mysterious means. I mean, hyp hypnosis is a scientific thing, but it's also, even the name just means sleep. So it's misunderstood and it, it's kind of fringe on... Um, the spectrum of things that people use to make their lives better. And the other side of my life is magic with a K magic as in transformation creating. And um, I'm also a performer and, and creating uh, experiences that seem impossible as a mentalist, but there are a lot of parallels between the paths that we've taken in life. And uh, there's a lot of faith involved. And, um, but I'm going to play for you the original opening that I had that I recorded in October. And, um, it's interesting because at that time there was a, a full moon and, and last night there was the super moon and the last the biggest moon in 69 years. And we went out and looked at it and, uh, it was beautiful. So here is my original introduction and then uh, after that, we will go right to the interview with Adrian Dawson. Welcome to Mysterious World. I am Stuart Palm. And 
Happy Mid-Autumn. We just had the Mid-Autumn Festival here in Hong Kong, uh, which happens uh, usually, it seems, around the middle of September, which for Hong Kong is way too warm to be calling autumn, but uh, it follows the moon. And so we just had a wonderful, beautiful full moon. And uh, I didn't get to see it with my own eyes, but there was an eclipse as well. So I hope those of you that follow those sorts of things got a look at the nice eclipse. Uh, it was supposed to be an, an impressive one. The moon I did see it. It was an, an empowerful, an empowerful, I made a new word there, an impactful, powerful moon. Um, and my son, we went out and at night and to the playground and took a look at the moon. Um, he's slowly becoming aware of, um, aware of things such as the moon and and stars we'll, we'll get to. It's a bit hard to see stars in Hong Kong. There's too much light pollution, but I, I can't wait to take him to a place where you can actually see the the Milky Way and, and the expanse of the universe with your own eyes. That's something that we've gotten away from. We need a little more of that. Um, in fact, there there are parts of the world that they're saying are, um, I forget the name for it, but there's a name for zones where there's no light pollution, pollution-free um, so that we can see the stars and see the night and actually have that natural experience. Um, there's also places in the world, uh, that don't have electromagnetic radiation. I was watching a, a documentary by Werner Herzog recently, a, a Nubach documentary, um, that was very impressive. And, uh, he talked about the sort of crazy technological world we live in, the advancements of AI and uh, the positive things and some of the negative things, such as people who are in some sense allergic to electromagnetic radiation, people who are moving away from the grid to live in spaces where they don't have to be bombarded with electricity all the time. Um, apparently there's a space around a big uh, radio satellite where they do not allow any devices because it would be interfere with the radio satellite's ability to pick up what it is aiming at. Um, and I will, I will uh, pause a second here so that I can go look up what that movie was called and tell you. Okay, it's called Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World. Great film. You can get it on uh, iTunes, so check it out. But it's been a good time. Uh, the last uh, episode uh, was a lot of fun and really got me focused. I've been really into looking into more about um, remote viewing since then. And I am setting up the next interview um, that I would record with Lynn Buchanan, who um, has written many books and is one of the subjects of um, the original Stargate program. And so that will be enlightening and, and fascinating, and I, I'm very excited. Jumping back into the present, you can see from the tone in my voice and the speed at which I, I spoke uh, that, that I, was a, I was a little peppier that day. Uh, I wasn't thinking about Donald Trump. Um, so let's keep on that tone, and uh, I'll tell you, I, I think remote viewing is really cool. I've been keep going on uh, studying that, and I've had some amazing ability with it. Um, so look into that if you're interested. But right now we're going to switch gears, and we're going to talk to my sister, the Reverend Adrian Dawson.
read the introduction to the TED Talk book? I think I have a different TED Talk book from you. I, I, think, I think you, you recommended one, and I haven't picked that one up yet. So, no, I haven't read There's that. There's an introduction to the TED Talk book where... Um, What's the, the one, name? What's the name of the TED Talk book? Uh, just a second. It's done by the curator of TED Talk. So it's the author. Okay. The author is Chris Anderson. Okay. So his TED Talk book. Yeah. Actually, I have it right here. Um, and he says an interesting thing. Okay. Here's what he says. This is. You can edit this out if it's boring. <laughs> he says um, in his introduction, he calls it the new age of fire. Um, and he talks about a uh, speaker coming out on the stage, legs trembling, you know, pretty kind of vulnerable, you know, no fancy um, uh, stage or anything, just one human being standing there. The audience is, you know, waiting to see what will happen next. And then he says, what happens next is astounding. 1,200 brains inside the heads of 1,200 independent individuals start to behave very strangely. They begin to sync up. A magic spell woven by the woman washes over each person. They gasp together, laugh together, weep together. And as they do so, something else happens. Rich neurologically encoded patterns of information inside the woman's brain are somehow copied and transferred to the 1,200 brains in the audience. These patterns will remain in those brains for the rest of their lives, potentially impacting their behavior years into the future. The woman on the stage is weaving wonder, not witchcraft, but her skills are as potent as any sorcery. So, I think uh, that kind of... Um, power over, or I would actually say power with a community gathered, mm -hmm. um, to receive whatever it is you have to give them is very similar between church and what you do in performances on stage, or even, you know, the things you do in, you know, with just a couple people, yeah. um, yeah, they're, they're definitely public speaking has its own magic, um, and it's interesting because the first thing as he was going over that nice description uh, that I thought of as a difference is that um, I have to often gain their attention first. <laughs> so uh, the, the TED construct of the big red dot and the focused audience who's there to hear somebody talk for yeah. a amount of time uh, is a luxury. Yeah. And um, you have a situation where people are there um, <laughs> either to hear you or out of some obligation to society and their own sense of actually, duty being to there their own fam to their family to their own okay obligation yeah. to their own family and they have a limited amount of things distracting them i'm very curious to talk about a moment about um uh smartphones in the church because i have not experienced that yet and i'm i'm sure it's a constant problem um <laughs> but i do a lot of work at banquets uh-huh and they 
they are always trying to schedule my performance in conjunction with a course of a meal. And it's like, that's not going to, I don't know why you think that, do you not do this for a living? Like you think a guy who's going to talk to people on stage can do that while the people are eating. And then, and then I watched what they do and they're like, yeah, they do think that because they have the host saying stuff while people are eating and they're at round tables. So a quarter of the audience is facing the other direction yeah. anyway. And they, you know, they'll have screens around the room, but nobody's going to look at the screens because it's just, they're going to talk to each other and they're going to eat. So I have to I have to enforce no you need to put me at the end of the evening after they're done. And then and then they can watch. Otherwise there's no point. And I still come across problems with that sometimes where they'll schedule me and they'll change it and whatever. Uh so I have a big the big the big trouble of I have to gain their attention. So I have to do something that has to involve them that's interactive. Uh, and sometimes I, and I have a bunch of things that I do and sometimes they work great. And sometimes I'm like, yep, this audience is not going to do, we could, I could get naked and light myself on fire and maybe then they would look over here, <laughs> but <laughs> they might dial nine one one on their smartphone while they're watching. That. Yeah, no, probably not. Um, <laughs> they'd be like, oh, it's bright. Um, <laughs> they might give it a glance. Uh, so, so yeah, there's that. I have a liturgical setup that, I mean, at least for the sermon, puts me in a position of um, gaining the most attention. Like you're saying, you know, put me at the end of the of the banquet or put me in a place where people are primed and ready to pay attention, not at the time where I'm going to be battling for their attention. Um, of course, there's always things that can happen in the midst of church that will draw attention away. Um, and, and also the shape of the liturgy, because it's an Episcopal church and it's not a, you know, choose your own adventure church. Um, the, the shape of the liturgy actually really helps, um, people focus in a particular way at a particular time. The only danger to it is that, um, sometimes the, if people are not, if the ritual is no longer uh, inspiring to them, then the then the regularity of it be- becomes a you know anesthetizes people. Um, if people are like ex- are like oh I like the you know what comes next or I'm being prepared for what comes next, then you know that works great. If people are um, resistant or they're just tired of the ex of what it, it, they've come to expect, then, um, then you, I can lose people that way as well. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, um, I, I've enjoyed the sermons of yours I've heard, but when I relate to this, um, every time, you know, when you talk about the construct of a liturgy and, and the construct of, um, giving a sermon, I can't divorce my mind from going back to childhood and yeah. thinking of being in a Methodist church, uh, bored to tears, with a guy on stage, and I just, right. I'm, and and I'm, and am I, and then I'm thinking, why is it that I wasn't engaged? Because occasionally I was engaged. I'm engaged with singing. That's fine. I can the sing. Music was that was engaging. But and sometimes there's a story that I'm like, huh, this is interesting. 
But um, but other times they will they would go off into and so and so said Barbara. And if I didn't know the story, I'd be like, eh, I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yep. yeah. There's a it's got to so be I a work challenge. That. Yeah. I mean, I have to, I have to work against that. And so I'm usually recasting the story in some new way so that it catches people's attention. Right. You know, so that they go, oh, I've heard that story a hundred times or, you know, or that's one of those boring Bible stories that never made any sense to me. And all of a sudden now it connects to something in my life. Right. Um, So... Uh, like last Sunday, I used the metaphor of adopting a dog from the pound and how a lot of dogs that you adopt have hidden issues <laughs> because that you don't discover until you bring them home and you, you know, kind of work with them and you discover that, you know, they're really frightened of the rake. Every time you pick up the rake, they run and hide. Yeah. And you know, so then you have to figure out how to teach them that they're safe and that they're cared for. And, and so then I use that, you know, so there's something that people, if they've ever adopted an animal or they have any inclination about that, they go, Oh yeah, yeah, I get it. And, and if they're animal lovers, everybody, they're hooked, you know, yes, I love my pet. Um, And then I turned it to the gospel story, which was basically Jesus teaching someone who had always been beaten with, you know, with the stick of society that she was not an outcast and that she was, in fact, loved. And, you know, and I kind of linked it to taking Penny to the PetSmart and having um, PetSmart employees in every aisle with treats. So that as she went down the aisle, she got a treat instead of a stick. (laughs) And I said, you know, this is what Jesus is doing with these people who are outcast and who are used to being beaten and chased to the margins. He's bringing them to the center and giving them a treat, Um, healing them, teaching them, inviting them to the table. They're not pushed away. The, you know, the issue is the, the dogs who are normally at the table are getting a little ticked off. Um, yeah. So anyway, so that's what I tend to do because these stories, even if they're not familiar, people are like, I don't know what the hell this thing means. Does this have any meaning for me? How do I make any sense out of it? You know, and, and I said, you know, maybe religion, maybe you're a dog that's been beaten by the stick of religion. (laughs) So you're not inclined to listen to any of these stories or expect that, you know, anyone's going to tell you that God loves you. It's that God's, you know, going to get you. So how, how often do you need to come to church and get a treat in order to have your, you know, to have a behavioral adjustment? Um, Right. So anyway, yeah. So that's what I, that's how I end up preaching is like figuring out how to re, um, retool the scripture because either people are bored with it or they're afraid of it. Right. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, do you, you get people who come into um, your shows who are like, Oh yeah, I hate magicians or 
I'm going to figure this out or it's all a, you know, hoax. I don't, I mean, you get people who come in who are, who are pre-programmed all the time. Yeah. 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 There's always, it's your group of skeptic naysayers and the, yeah, all the time. I think once they see that I'm not out to make anyone a fool and Mm. that it, then that it, um, changes the construct, but I have to sort of show that in the beginning that, um, it's about entertainment and fun and also empowerment and that, that, but then again, I can't, I mean, I have a show that I'm designing around, um, uh, getting people to focus on their imagination and creativity and their own goals, but subtly so that, cause I don't want anybody to be like feeling as though I'm tr- trying to be too, some people, if you're doing something motivational, it turns them off. Mm-hmm. Don't manipulate me. Yeah. I don't want to be motivated. And, and so it's subtly woven in the guise of it's a fun time. And so they, you know, it begins with establishing this is fun. We're going <laughs> right. to be fun and amazing. And later you can ponder how it is that I knew what the number was you were thinking of or whatever it was. But, mm-hmm. you know. In the moment, come with me. Yeah. Take, take this yeah. little journey. The other thing that occurs to me, though, also, like we do have visitors who come to church. But for the most part, the bulk of the community gathered for worship, it knows me and I know them. So that's also, that's a little different. Yeah. Uh, it's very different. You know, what I'm doing is, you know, creating a space for imagination, for wonder, for mystery. I mean, we're trying to craft that with music. We're trying to craft that with, with, um, prayers and, and kind of language and, and at the same time, we're also trying to connect. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, whether it's me or someone else leading some portion of worship, we're trying to connect with a community of people that we predominantly know. That's not always the case. I mean, if you're doing a worship service for a funeral and I don't know anybody except for the immediate family of the deceased or something, that's it's not like I change what we do, but it changes how it changes how um, intimate I can make the connections. Yeah. I have to kind of guess more about what's going to connect with people versus if it's a community I've been with for a long time, then I know which part of my sermon or which part of the, the a hymn we choose or you know, which part of whatever we're doing is going to be meaningful to certain people because of the relationship we've established outside of that. That's interesting because for me, um, if you gave me the option of a room full of people I know versus a room full of people who are complete strangers, mm-hmm. I love the room full of strangers. Yeah. I'm fine with the room full of people I know, but... I know that they're going to be on my side to a certain degree already. Uh, um, the, but there's a, there's a power to expectation and not knowing what, what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And um, there's also after, 
when I entertain a group of people and I and I know that the show went well and I've never met those people before, then I know more about the show. <laughs> I you know yeah. then because that was a that was a test lab. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like oh, you know everything went well with these people who who I've never met and right and, like a focus group. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's not like I'm going to bring it back to the people that know me, but it's much more exciting. It, last night, we, uh, Christine and I went to a friend's place for dinner, and um, and, I, and there were a few people there that I'd not met before. Um, and on the way back, we shared a, a, an Uber, and um, the uh, this guy was asking us if I'd hypnotized Christine or... <laughs> I do this stuff with Christine and she was like, yeah, no. <laughs> and, and I have used in little subtle ways, but, but you know, the full on hypnosis that she's seen me do with other people I've never done to her. I've never even attempted to do with her because yeah. she knows me too well. And yeah. she's not going to let, it's just a different, um, if she really wanted to let go completely, and uh, she, it would work. It would be fine. But she sees me. She she knows all the angles of me. Mm-hmm. And so the the mystery angle and the, sort of that like, I guess power is changed. The power yeah. dynamic is changed. Yeah. Uh. So it's like me seeing you as a conduit of God is going to be totally different than a parishioner. Yeah. Because you're my sister. Yeah. Well, right. And um, that's another interesting piece about this is like, for me, I'm, I know that worship is going to happen routinely, regularly, and, and that I'm, I'm creating more of like a community habit or community practice yeah. of engaging your, I don't want to say like, well, remember you wrote something about like inviting people into a place of imagination and wonder, like where they can experience something bigger than themselves or outside of themselves. And yep. so, so I find that, Yes, people, and particularly in today's culture, you know, I either people go like into the realm of conspiracy theory or, you know, kind of Area 51, you know, stuff. If they're imagining, you know, if they're if they're wanting to imagine like there's the unknown, you know, or there's things I don't understand or like that's one avenue that society our culture kind of hooks people in, um, or they can go the route route of like, uh, self-help gurus, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, or they sometimes go the route of, of a more, um, literalistic or, or, um, religious practice. That's very much like, if I do X, Y, and Z, God will bless me. If I do this, I will be cursed. And it's kind of like a recipe for 
change. It's, it's still the self-help thing. It's still like, how can I, you know, make my life better? Well, if you follow these simple steps, you will, you know, win God's favor and you'll receive the blessings. Yeah. So I, and all of those things, I don't, I think like they're great. They're kind of like, um, physical therapy or spiritual therapy things, you know, like you can spend a period of time working on something or taking on a new habit or whatever. But I feel like what I'm trying to weave in worship is a a rhythm of life, a habit that you can, that you participate in once a week or twice a week, or heck, maybe you go to church every day for worship. I don't know, but you go regularly and you have kind of a routine to it so that the rest of your days in life, you can always um, either remember back to something that happened in that community worship experience. I think that's the other piece of it. It's not individual. It's all communal. Right. And, and again, a lot of those other things are very individualistic. Like I'm going to take on this habit or I'm going to, you know, fast for 10 days or whatever. I mean, people take on these personal things, but communal worship is something completely different and it forces you to put your, like if you bring your whole self, but you also have to put yourself to the side and like participate in the group. Yeah. And, and that, you know, even that lady you don't like who's sitting next to you, you know, when we're thinking about, or we're, we're experiencing, gosh, God really loves us. Even that lady, you know, or, huh, you know, like it, it kind of confronts you with your own crap. Mm-hmm in the midst of the community. And I guess what I feel like is that because it's routine, it's not like a one-off thing. The idea is it becomes a routine part of your life that you're either reflecting back on what you did the last time you were at worship, or you're thinking forward to, you know, I'm going to, I'm taking, I'm bringing that to worship this Sunday, or I'm going to offer that prayer of thanks up when we get together for worship on Sunday, or there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of routine to it that starts to order and shape the time in between. And I don't know if like, I was kind of thinking about your, when you were in New York and doing Monday night magic, Yeah. um, if that was kind of that kind of routine for that community of magicians. Um, But how, you know, is there a place for that in what you do, especially I guess with the hypnotism or, you know, is, is there a place for that in the kind of performances you do with people, um, that starts to order and shape other, the times when they're not there for the performance, but when they're reflecting back or forward on it. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's not ritualistic in that sense. It, for, for most people, they don't experience this on a, reg- a regular basis. So right. it can't create that um situation but i think it must do some of what you're talking about mm-hmm. monday night magic was a community thing for me i mean that was a yeah it was totally a a place to go and and watch and learn 
um, and study other performers. And it was really great to have on that, um, that level. Uh, the difference is uh, there's a lot of ego mm. in the performance community. Yeah. And so there's a lot of headbutting and the church dynamic has its basis in love that you don't find a lot of other places, I guess. Well, the ego bullshit's all still there too. Yeah. Though. You can't get rid of that. You can't get rid you of that. I'm, I'm part of a community now that, that, uh, that is actually meeting, uh, in in Las Vegas right now. And, uh, it's a group called the psychic entertainers association. Oh. And, um, so I, I, most of my activity with them is, well, I guess all of my activity with them is online because I'm the only one in Hong Kong. Um, <laughs> the only member in Asia, I think. Um, maybe there's one other member in Asia, but um, they there is definitely a, a community thing that's similar in that dynamic mm-hmm. um, of we're all here f- for a particular reason. We've accepted each other for a particular set of skills and understanding and we're sharing and learning from each other. And while we do have our own ego differences occasionally, and there is um, fights about little differentiations in the way we, we interpret uh, how to deal with our audiences and what we do and that kind of thing. We, we generally accept Mm -hmm. and want to lift each other up. And I think everybody needs a group like that somehow. Yeah. You, yeah, you you do um, a colleague group. Yeah, I, I'm 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 also a member of a thing called the <laughs> British Society of Mystery Entertainers, and so that there's that group too. And so, I mean, that's one of the reasons that uh, like Christine will be like, "My God, you spend a lot of time on Facebook," and I'm like, "Yeah, because that's where my community is." That I mean, you know, that is this particular community that I don't have otherwise. Um, and and I've gone to the Episcopal Church here. And I've just, I don't find an in. I don't yeah. see, I don't, there's no, I don't have a sense of like, oh, welcome, you know, yeah. <laughs> <Shoot>. <laughs> which is, uh, you know, that's uh, terrible. Well, I don't know where it is. It's got to be there somewhere, but I don't, I didn't see it. And, um, uh, so th- uh, there may be another group or something, but uh, where I have found that is, is in the world of self-helpy people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and and I've been the more I'm I'm in hypnotherapy and the more I am doing things that are specifically to help people, uh, the more I'm involved in the sort of metaphysical new age community. And uh they're an interesting bunch. There's there's a thing here uh called the Red Door Studio and and it's a lady who um she does a yoga group and she does um thing called a gong bath we were talking about this last night because a couple people other than myself uh and christine had been to a gong one of the gong baths she does and at a gong bath there's yoga mats laid out and everybody sits for a chanting session mm-hmm. and then after the chanting session you lie down and they put a blanket over you and they she has like 20 gongs really big mm-hmm. ones and small ones and all different tones and uh, they're actually quite cool. They're they're set to the frequencies of different planets, 
So there's like the Mars gong and the Earth gong and the Moon gong, and they're you know they, there's different oh. things she's focused on when she's using different gongs. But for 45 minutes or all night, she does one that goes all night. Oh, uh, she you lie there and she plays a gong and and it's intense and uh, it has a residual effect that lasts for days uh, at a good one. The first time I went was really good and um. I expected to lie there and listen to gongs for 45 minutes. I did not expect to have something uh, equivalent to a really strong drug experience. Like it was, there were moments where I was like, whoa, this is intense and I'm feeling fear and I need to let go of the fear. And then I let go of the fear and I'm like, whoa, I'm getting another place. And I'm actually hallucinating a bit while I'm lying here with my eyes closed listening to gong music. And it, it, and it, it was a trance state. I had gone into a very deep trance state and um it was great um and so that community there is people who go i'm sure every week to to do the gong bath and the chanting and the whole thing and and there's people that go for yoga and i'm horrible at yoga but i i I was (laughs) i was doing that for a little while i need to get back to it right but the less is an athletic thing and more is a uh spiritual practice yeah that's how i see it too and 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 i've been to different yoga groups and one i've been to ones that were like it's it's uh hot yoga and the room's hot and they were doing yoga at a faster pace to like upbeat music and i was like yeah this is totally not for me this is the wrong version of this idea now i'm going to a thing i'm going to be part of a thing this weekend this next Mm -hmm. weekend um which is a wellness uh festival or something Mm -hmm. And um, I'm scheduled in for a, a, a performance of sorts that's going to be more about, it's more like a, a talk and workshop than it is a performance. But um, I, I can't do a workshop without doing some performancey things because I know that it engages the audience better and I'll get a better response from them. But the cool thing is, is that at a festival, everything's loud and hard to focus uh, for the group that I'm working with, I will have a microphone and, and everybody in the audience will have a headset and the headphones on. And so I'm like talking right into their head. So you know, they, they can't, they won't be able to escape uh, fo- focus. That will not direct line. That will not be a problem. Yeah. There's a new thing um, called silent disco and people are starting to use the silent disco headsets in different ways. And the silent disco Normally is really funny. You'll see it as a festival. You'll see a sort of roped off area of a bunch of people dancing with headphones on. Mm-hmm. And um, and you can't hear what they're hearing. But you're just it's like watching a weird performance piece of like, oh, are they all they're to all the listening to the same music. But I don't know what it is. But like, you know, they're all grooving to the, you can tell they grew into the same beat. Wow. But, you know, you can't hear it because oh, they're all wearing head, headphones. And they're just everybody's got a wireless headset and there's a DJ playing the DJ set and they're all dancing around. Uh, So it's the same setup, but for a performance, which is great. Um, So I'm looking forward to it, although it's a completely new way of doing something. So it's going to be it's going to be interesting. Um, What I have noticed, though, is there is a the people that go and are part of the new age self-help yoga search they're Mm -hmm. all searching yes and they're in this they're in this constant state 
of searching for something. Yeah. And they don't know what they're, I mean, they kind of know what they're looking for usually, but they don't really know what they're looking for. And, and I've had some really astounding moments with, with people who are, are deeply part of that world. Um, I was doing a show a couple weeks ago and there was a guy there who I know is a leader in the yoga group. He's got photos of himself tied up in pretzels, you know, like he can, right. He's perfect in that. And, um, and he, he's well-respected, uh, at being flexible and he's well-respected at being a leader for others to learn and develop their own sense of, of, uh, yoga and, and, you know, all that. And I do a thing now where in, in, in a new show that I do that I call Oracle, you know, I'm all, uh, pomp and circumstance. Uh, but I do a thing where I give everybody a sheet of paper in it and it has them write down answers to just three different questions, but it's all focused on personal goals and creativity. Uh-huh. And he wrote something about like needing to, you know, find a sense of calm and um, focus. Like, Mm-hmm. what he wrote down would be the thing I would think people would go to him for, mm-hmm. which surprised right. me, which surprised me. And the more of people in that group that, that are, are even leaders in that group that I, I talked to and, and involved with, the more I realized that like, they really need the yoga, um, like not for being flexible. They yeah. need to be there to let themselves calm yeah. down and find that, sense of relaxation and there's a gift that i have which is i'm kind of just calm and relaxed normally Mm -hmm. like i definitely get angry and frustrated and and go through the gamut of emotions but um whatever it is that they don't have that they're looking for in yoga and there's other things that i would that that kind of community focus and doing a ritual together really would does help and and would give me but what they're looking for um, it surprises me. It makes me go, oh, really? Yeah. You don't have that? Oh, yeah. Right, right. And what I and I noticed, like, oh, you're getting a little bit of it from this show that I'm doing. That's cool. I'm I'm glad that I'm able to, you know, in some way, help you let go because I think a lot of it's just letting go. Well, and if you're if you have. Uh, been striving to be the a leader or striving to achieve some level of excellence, then you're not allowing yourself to be vulnerable enough to be, to receive the benefits of what it is that you're sharing with others. So flip it into clergy world or into church world. Um, oftentimes like clergy become professional prayers for others. Yeah. But they completely forget how to be vulnerable enough to pray for themselves. Yeah. Or allow others to pray for them. Or like they, because they have to, for whatever, their ego or their anxiety about, you know, being good enough or, or even just the expectations of the community if you buy into all of that stuff, 
and you don't um, sort of keep your own, like you don't keep the seeking that brought you to where you are alive, then you lose the intimacy of it because you're, you're the one who's, you fill up all of your time and energy in the practice of leading others instead of seeking yourself. And it's, it's hard. That's really hard. I think that's also sort of where the colleague group piece comes in, at least for me, um, you know, in all the ways, like I, I am pretty vulnerable with my congregation and I'll even say to them, Hey, you know, there's some difficult stuff going on, or I really need you guys to, um, pray about this with me or be, be there for me. You know, like I'll, I'll try to not in a way that's like, Oh, I need your help. I'm so helpless, but it's kind of partnering with them and saying, you know, here's something I'm struggling with. Um, I'm not able to take care of everything all by myself. I need the community as much as you do. Um, I need to know that I'm not alone in this as much as you do. And so the, the, there, but then there's some things that, you know, just not, aren't appropriate for me to take to the, um, church community. And that's when my colleague group really comes in to play, or actually I can be oblivious to it. And my colleague group will call me on my shit and they'll be like, Hey, look, you're not dealing with, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, or you're, you know, over-functioning and you need to stop that. Or you've, you know, when's the last time you took a day off? Or, you know, you need to get into therapy because you're not dealing with this anxiety stuff or whatever it is. You know, they, they're often very good because they have, you know, are in the same kind of work. They can see the ways that the work I'm doing is eroding my own spiritual health right? and, and help push me back. I mean, it's like, it's like going to see a nutritionist and you walk into the office and your nutritionist is like a hundred pounds overweight <laughs> and like eating donuts yeah. and you're like, wait, what? And they're going to be great at teaching you what to do, but they suck at doing it themselves. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, and so often we do find that, you know, but, but I think that's, that's a sad sort of state of affairs. It is a, it's a pitfall, especially in church communities, because people either want, they want to know just, you know, they want to knock the priest off the pedestal. Like, yeah, you're human. Look, you know, I found the, you know, see me underside of your life. Or they don't want you to ever come down off the pedestal and they want you to stay, you know, perfect and whole and don't ever reveal to me that you have clay feet and that you're a real human being. Right. And, and for the most part, um, you know, there's I can see different ways that that manifests itself. And I'll say to people like, I'm not the reason why you come to church like Jesus and God and your relationship with God are the reason you come to church. Like, because I will eventually do something to horribly disappoint you. And when I do, I would like you to still come here and f plug in to your relationship with God, even if I have, have done something to disappoint you. Right. You know, and it's that kind of stuff that is, 
you just always have to be sort of on your guard about it and figure out like, what's the thing I wonder for this yoga guy, um, what is it that keeps him from having that calm and peace? Is it that he ha- he feels like he has to be something else for his community of students or? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, uh, I'd like to actually talk to him more. So usually this is the part of the show where I share something in the news um, that would be the mystery of the week. And I looked at the uh, Google, um, the, what, what do I say? What is the Google, I put out, I, I follow some things in Google. I forget what you call this, but uh, I just looked at the Google feed and uh, the top mystery thing was the mystery of Trump's uh, White House. And so uh, I don't want to get back into that again. Uh, instead, I am going to give you uh, an empowering question, which is something I learned about uh, through study of hypnosis and is very commonly used on uh, Mike Mandel's podcast, Brain Software. And I highly recommend if you have any interest in hypnosis and hypnotherapy and uh, NLP to listen to Mike Mandel and look into his work. So here is my empowering question for all of you. Imagine first, it's one year from today. What is different about your life that is more congruent with the way you want the world to be? And what did you do to make these changes happen. Now back to my interview with Reverend Adrian Dawson. One thing that I think is interesting that is a, a crossover between the worlds that we're in um, is this sense of calling. And I'm yep. Uh, the question I want to ask for for the people listening, uh, just to hear you you tell tell a short version of it. Is, is how in the world you became a priest. Um, but but uh, the way that I interpret that idea of calling, and, a, uh-huh. and I think people have callings for all sorts of different things. Absolutely. And uh, the way that I interpret it, and I actually said this in a, in a conversation the other day uh, when somebody asked, well, you know, what, do you, what advice do you have for people who are thinking about doing similar things to what you're doing or that kind of thing? And I and I said, okay, well, there's no reason to do this unless and you sh- and I I wouldn't recommend following the path of being an entertainer for groups, un- unless unless if you were to ask me that question and I say no, don't do it, and you do it anyway, unless there's a sense of like, yeah, this is I, I can't not do this, I have to do this. Right. It's like a feeling of like when I'm not doing this. I feel like I'm not doing what I need to be doing. Right. That makes any sense. To yeah, like I, 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 this is, this is like, okay, this is right. I'm supposed to be doing this. There's a sense and, I, and it's hard to describe. And sometimes I guess you could probably question it, but generally you feel driven and you know that this is right. Um, so I, that's how I, I, from my own perspective relate to like, okay, I, I think that's probably what, a calling feels like to God or whoever. Um, yeah. So um, how'd you become a priest? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a surprise to me. Um, so I guess two things actually. Um, 
that were the setup uh, or the backdrop, I guess, for me discovering um, that this was, in, in fact, the only thing that I really wanted to do with my life. Um, right. So the two things were discovering 12-step recovery and discovering church community at the same kind of, kind of, at the same time. Um, both experiences, 12-step groups and healthy church, and let me preface it, healthy church, um, where people did have a sense of welcome, knew how to build relationships and invite people into a community where you were safe, respected, you could trust and explore your faith without fear of all the dysfunctional garbage that oftentimes accompanies religious communities, any brand. Um, so, so I was having two very, um, I mean, they were separate groups, but two experiences of really the gift of community. And I think we grew up, I don't know if I would say like a distorted sense of what is community. I don't know. I don't, I don't ever remember experiencing us um, giving over ourselves as a family, like, or watching, you know, or watching our parents, like, give themselves over to a community. Like, I guess the the closest was like maybe the arts community and the art center, but even there, like mom was in charge right? or, you know, dad was in charge. And so that's a very different, um, it was a different kind of like, anyway. So all of a sudden I found myself experiencing what it was like to be, um, part of two communities that believed that your life could be transformed. And one community was talking about, you know, transformation from addiction of whatever variety. And another community was talking about basically transformation from death, whatever variety, you know, the, the deaths we die every day or the big one at the end or whatever, you know, that God doesn't, um, God's love is bigger than death and you can't, you are never, um, left for dead, you know, that, that God journeys with you through that. So I, I think I discovered in both of those places, something so like powerful and life-changing for me. Um, and that was super important. What I wasn't expecting was that as I was becoming more um, committed, invested, you know, making some decisions to, you know, stay in Annapolis so I could stay connected to this church. And I wasn't ready to, you know, walk away yet from this community, which was a total surprise to me. I didn't, you know, up until that point, I think I was just such an individualist. That I was like, well, you know, I can go anywhere and plot myself down anywhere and it doesn't matter. But all of a sudden I found myself really um, connected and tied in a way that made me accountable to the community. 
in a way that I just hadn't experienced before. So, um, what surprised me was when other people started saying to me, you know, I think that you might be called to be a priest in the church. Mm. And I was like, what? I just got here. Like, (laughs) you're crazy. (laughs) Um, You know, like, and also it, it plugged into um, a part of myself that I was trying to distance myself from, which is the part of like myself where in any group, I always end up in charge. And so I was like, I don't want to do that here. Like I'm receiving too much from being part of the community. I don't want to be in charge of the community. Mm. Like that's, that's a pitfall for me. Um, you know, I'm always in charge and that's not, doesn't always bring out the best. And so I really kind of discounted it, um, and, and said no. Um, and, and then, um, a couple of things, you know, happened that sort of made me realize that maybe actually what God was doing was saying, yeah, I know you're aware of your pitfalls and that's precisely why you need to do this. Um, you know, it's like putting the alcoholic to tend bar, you know, Mm. (laughs) you see the signs of over drinking or you see the signs of someone being unhealthy. And so because it's part of you, you are going to be good at this. Right. Um, or, or the community needs you to do this. And so, um, so one, one, we like, I guess it was, it doesn't really matter when it was. Um, I went to a training, um, I'd been going, I'd gone to another training for, um, teaching godly play, which is a Montessori based, uh, curriculum for teaching scripture. And I went to this training in um, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, actually. And I rode in the car with this whole group of people that were going up to get the training all together. And the guy who was teaching it was the creator of the curriculum. His name is Jerome Berryman. And at this point, he doesn't teach his curriculum anymore, but a lot of other people do. Um, and he was a student of Sophia Cavaletti, who was a student of Maria Montessori. And I had quickly learned that when you go to one of these trainings with Jerome Berryman, there's kind of a cult aspect to it because these people who are like so committed to Montessori education, um, you know, feel like Jerome is a, is a direct line to the source of Maria Montessori. So I always like went to these trainings totally and loving everything that Jerome had to share because he was an existentialist and he was a Episcopal priest. And he like wove together this amazing, I found really adult, like amazing way of accessing scripture using a Montessori method. And, um, and, and the kids enjoyed it too, which was kind of a nice byproduct. Um, so I remember sitting there after watching him, you know, do a few um, lessons, but different parables and stuff. And we were getting late into the evening and I was getting tired. And he was like, well, we're going to do one more. We're going to do the parable of the pearl of great price. And so I like kind of rolled my eyes because I hate that parable. 
And I thought, ugh, this it's materialistic. It's like two lines of scripture. How can you build an entire um, lesson? Can you say the two lines? Um, So the two lines are uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who knows the value of pearls. And he spends his whole life searching for the pearl of great, greatest price. And when he finds it, he gives everything he has to possess it. That's it. Okay. So, and, and I'm, yeah, it's not my favorite. So (laughs) I'm kind of like, but I realize now because I had kind of gone into this space of like, oh, I'm kind of tuned out. I also was open in a different way. Like I wasn't listening to him in a way of like, wow, I really want to learn how to tell this parable. I was kind of like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like I'll, I'll, I'm here, but I'm engaged in a different way. And so the way the parable gets told, there's all these different kind of, they look like the outlines of the footprint for a house that get laid out. And in some of them are, you know, pearls. And then there's this merchant and he's in one of the houses and his house is full of stuff. And so he goes around searching for the pearl of greatest price. And when he finds it, he goes to purchase it. So he come, goes back to his house and he gets his bags of money and he brings it over and it's not enough. And he goes back to his house and he collects some more items. And this goes on like numerous times. And every time he hands over some things, it's not enough to purchase the pearl. And so finally he empties his entire house and then it's still not enough. And he goes back and he rolls up the footprint of his house and he brings that over. And then you have kind of the stark visual of the merchant standing there with absolutely nothing like naked, no house, no stuff, no nothing. And then it was enough. And they placed the pearl in his hands and that's the end of the parable. So In that moment was when I feel like I got hit in the head by a two by four, which said to me, you idiot, this is what you are being called to do. Like you're being, you need to say yes and give up everything to possess this. And it wasn't like, and here's your clear path to priesthood, but it was, you've been pushing this thing away and saying no, you know, and telling people they're crazy and, and not being willing to, um, receive what's, what's there that, you know, is, you know, this is of greatest price, but you haven't been willing to give up everything to take it, to, to take hold of it. Right. And so I rode home in the back of someone's car from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, thinking, holy shit, what just happened to me? Like, I want to unknow that or now I'd, or I can't unknow that. Now what do I do with that? And so I went into these, this great, like energetic, um, effort to kind of revamp my job at the church. I was doing, I was coordinating Christian ed for the kids and stuff. And I was trying to like retool that, you know, I was, I don't know. I was trying to avoid what I had just seen in the parable. And, and then I went into the rector's office, the head priest at the church. And I was like, I need to talk to you about my work and what I'm doing and maybe changing my job description or blah, blah, blah. 
And I don't even know what the hell I said to him. I kind of was blathering on about all this stuff I wanted to do differently. And he looked at me and he said, do you think maybe you're called to ordination? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yes. (laughs) I just like came unglued. And then I like spewed up this whole story about the pearl of great price. (laughs) And he was like, yeah, that's what's going on here. Shut up about all this job stuff. This is what's going on. And I've realized like in that moment, I'd been working so hard to keep that door shut that like he just basically pushed me aside from the door and the door like burst open with all this energy and stuff behind it that I had been, I didn't even realize how hard I was working to push it closed. And, and then sort of from there, it just, everything kind of tumbled together. It it wasn't like an easy process. It was still a ton of like self work and then like ripping all that self work and that self sort of ex- uh, examination and vulnerability into the, these groups of people that were helping me discern whether I was called to the priesthood. And so it, it was very, um, exhausting and, and it still hmm. is exhausting. Cause I, it's still the same damn process, uh, that I went through then that I go through now trying to figure out what's next. Um, The last thing I want to say about this, though, is that at one point in the interview process, there's like a there's a group called the Commission on Ministry. And so they're like other priests and lay people from around the diocese who basically get to give you the thumbs up or the thumbs down for getting ordained. Hmm. It's a little like going into the Coliseum, you know, and like, well, should we let her live or should we flush her away? And um they care more than the people in the Coliseum, but, um, (laughs) it's, it's a little frightening to put yourself in their hands. So I was going to like one of the big interviews that was pretty important and is the time when, you know, if you're not, if you're going to get cut, that's when you get cut out of the process. So I'm in the midst of one of these big interviews and they're asking me about my call to ordination and why am I so sure I I need to be a priest and blah, blah, blah. And then like, for the umpteenth time, I'm telling the story about the parable of the pearl of great price. <laughs> and, um, and one of the people in the interview team, he's a priest in the diocese. Um, still I get done with the story and talking about, you know, giving up everything to possess this pearl and, and how that's changed my life so much. And he says to me, you know, Adrian, what if, um, what if, uh, how did he put it? What if you're not the merchant, but what if God's the merchant and you're the pearl? And like in an instant, (laughs) he sort of rearranged the whole parable for me. And all of a sudden, um, I was sort of confronted with, Oh, right. God is willing to give up everything in order to possess me. That's an entirely different, um, humbling kind of awareness. And it seemed, 
you know, in my sort of understanding and my theology and my experience of what God is willing to do to transform people's lives, a hundred percent accurate. Um, the problem in the interview process was that it reduced me to tears. And so I had to leave (laughs) the interview process. I was like, yeah, I'll just give me a minute. So, so I went, I just, I couldn't pull my, I couldn't pull my shit back together after that. I was like, Oh God. Okay. Right. I'm the pearl. God's the merchant. Got it. So, yeah, I remember being in the bathroom in the, um, building where the interviews were happening and sort of sobbing and trying to calm myself down and get my act back together so I could go back in and finish my interview. Um, but that damn parable that I, you know, didn't care so much about has really become this kind of touchstone (laughs) of, it's not the only piece of scripture that means it, but it's funny how that has continuously been, um, echoed throughout, uh, the last, what, 20 years, um, of this journey. Why didn't God already possess you? Um, uh, God, well, I would say I didn't have a relationship with God. I think, um, what Mark was getting at is that, yeah, God already, God is willing to give up everything. God has already given up everything to possess me. I just hadn't, I had only thought about the work I needed to do to draw closer to God. I hadn't equated it with the work that God does to draw closer to each one of us. I'm, I'm very curious, um, what your model, what the model is of God in your mind, how you Hmm. would, what do you mean? Well, is that a, do you see God as a, like a person? No. Okay. God is a relationship. Right. That's really the only way I know how to describe it. Because when you do, when you do God is the merchant, God becomes a person in that model. Oh, it's a metaphor. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But um, I think the idea of God as a, individual right is is one of the things that a lot of people reject who are who can't do christian theology yeah, who theology. can't who can't do church um who are agnostic or atheists what do you mean by individual that god is a single consciousness that well, and and you said it in a few a few ways. This concept is brought through language. Um, in the metaphor, if God becomes an a person, right, uh, or the old man thing, and I know that that's not what we're talking about, but that sure. that's the simplest version that people are like, yeah, no. Um, the next, it's where it pops up. So whenever you say, um. Oh, maybe that's what his plan is for me. That yeah. So puts, that did you ever hear me? You have to go back and listen to your recording. Do mm-hmm. I say his? It's interesting, right? Maybe you did. Never, 
but it, but the his know. thing is used all through you know sure. the 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 history of it but even even not saying that um what was it you were saying you were saying um that you maybe you supposed to be doing something (laughs) (laughs) there was a supposed to aspect to it and it would be it was like uh maybe that's what uh god wants me to do maybe that's what i'm supposed to do that that kind of consciousness um means that there is an entity that had a plan um and people have a hard time with that too and i know that's not exactly what you mean but when it comes through the language like that right you're i have to battle against those um those models i actually have a sermon that periodically i i mean it's i don't mean like it's a canned sermon but every once in a while the text that's assigned for the sunday lends itself (laughs) to the sermon that i that i I kind of have dubbed my God does not have a plan for you sermon. Um, <laughs> because good. That's what I was getting at. And and I, and I wasn't sure exactly how to ask the question, but I guess I should say is does God have a plan? <laughs> um, I don't think so. I, here's what I think. I think God desires a relationship and desires for that relationship to be about, healing and wholeness and being your whole, the best you, the most complete you, you could be. Um, and I do not believe, you know, that God directs anything pretty much that happens on this planet. Um, what I do think is that God is in relationship with it. So my God does not have a plan for you sermon goes something like, you know, when good things happen, people often will say, oh, you know, well, that must have been according to God's plan or really, really horrible things happen. Sometimes people say, well, we just can't see what God's plan is in this, but there must be one. Um, I don't believe that. Uh, I think that God, God's, if God has a plan, it's to maintain relationship and be with us through whatever the world throws at us. Because I think in a lot of instances, what happens to you could be as random as getting murdered at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando to, you know, having a great evening with your friends. And you just don't get to choose often which one happens. Now, I mean, sometimes you can make your own bed and your life can become really impacted by choices that you've made. But there's also a lot of random shit that happens in the world. And, and there's also people who can, you know, you can be born into an abusive, horrible family. Is that God's plan for you? No. Um, but is God, but I do think it's God's plan to try to be revealed and, and have a relationship with people, whether they're having the most charmed existence or the most cursed existence, it, it doesn't really matter. Um, God is about being in relationship. And so that, and that it's that relationship that gives 
life meaning. Um, and that, uh, you know, you, and then ha- your own sort of awareness of, you know, how do you, what do you see? If, you know, people don't start seeking things until usually the shit hits the fan. Right. I mean, hmm. you don't have people coming up to you saying, you know, everything's going great. I think I'd like to have some hypnotherapy just for the heck of it. Right. Like people, people don't come to church because everything's going hunky dory. I mean, sometimes they'll show up because they want to get married and everything's going hunky dory. But for the most part, you know, when a new person comes through the door, you know, either this is already an established habit in their life or something horrible has just happened. And that's why they're there. <laughs> like, or, you know, they, they're in this process of seeking because something has changed in their life. Maybe right. not horrible, but something has altered their existence enough that they're looking for some meaning or some way to live through the change. And, and I think that those are some of the openings and the ways in which that relationship gets established Mm -hmm. and that trust begins to build and the practice of being in conversation with God, however you, you know, define that. And then I think for me, the whole, the, the Jesus piece of it, you know, which, which is an individual, I mean, God, the Holy spirit, you know, these other ways, wisdom, the other ways we describe God are not very, um, anthropomorphic, I guess is the best, you know, they're, they're not, they're just, you know, it's a burning bush. It's a whirlwind. It's a still small voice. It's a, uh, Ruach brooding over the tohu vavohu before creation. I mean, there's just who the heck knows what, what am I supposed to be imagining that I'm in relationship with? And then in Christianity, you get this Jesus who's a guy who lived in a particular time. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that's just a complete scandal. How can you take this unknowable, unnameable, huge, creator of the universe, God, and, and make that into a human being. So that's sort of the scandal of Christianity in terms of its Judaism. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, but Jesus is the one who reveals uh, how much God loves the world by how Jesus chooses to be in relationship with the world. So again, for me, it's all about the revelation of relationship. So Jesus keeps showing up for people. Jesus keeps healing people and feeding people and being in relationship with them. And even when they're the people that nobody else wants to be in relationship with, or even if they're the authorities, Jesus goes and eats with them too and says, you know, I've come to bring the love of God to the world. (laughs) And even after he's dead and everybody is scattered and you think, you know, given our, our human ways of doing things, we would imagine God would come back and whip, whoop, whoop up on everybody who had abandoned, you know, you were supposed to be my friends. What's wrong with you? Um, you know, why did you abandon me at the cross? Or, I mean, the whole example of Jesus's death and resurrection is yet one more instance of Jesus coming back and saying, peace be with you. I'd like to be in relationship with you. 
yes, I know, you know, <laughs> you uh, denied me three times and you sold me, you know, for a few silver coins and you ran away at the first sign of danger, but I'm, you, you can't get rid of me. Right. You know, and so it's that kind of understanding that compels me. Um, I don't, I think that there's some personal, um, for some people having a, a kind of personal, uh, touchstone or like, how do I access this relationship? Where is this intimacy with God? <laughs> Trying to imagine something huge and unnameable and unknowable and, you know, the, the, the ways that God gets described that are, um, hard to wrap yourself around are make it, make that intimacy difficult. Right. Um, but I think also the experiences that I've had of God reaching out to build relationship are not, um, are, are that kind of, it's that kind of intimacy. So, so I don't think, I think people need that. I needed that. I couldn't, I couldn't be in relationship with something unknowable, unnameable, untouchable. Um, I needed to feel known and to be connected, um, in a way that was more, uh, hu- I get, I don't want to say human, but part of my world. Um, right. yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense. I, 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 uh, I roll my eyes often at a dumbed down atheist response to the concept of a higher power mm-hmm. when they belittle it based on the idea that it's an old man in the sky. Uh, and it's like, well, yeah, okay. If you talk to real Christians who understand and the metaphors, yeah. they, they will, it makes them look stupid really. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to hear your, how you describe that. That was great. Thank you. For describing that, because because it's because that it turns a lot of people off when they're like. I think that people often don't get past their third grade. Yeah. Experience of the and and that's why I love the godly play. <laughs> that's it's interesting, but that's why the godly play stuff hits me so powerfully because it doesn't dumb down. It doesn't say, well, God is just like a big, a big guy in the sky who's looking after you, or it doesn't, it doesn't make it have to be so, um, so tell people what the godly play is concrete. So it's that, it's that Montessori based storytelling. Mm -hmm. It, it tells, so you share these scripture stories or you share these, um, parts of the, Christian tradition or Christian theology with kids. And then you don't answer any of the damn questions. You don't say, and this means black. You say, I wonder what this means to you. Yeah. I wonder who this could really be. I wonder where in your life you have met a merchant or I wonder 
what the pearl of great price could really be. I mean, so you, at the end of every story is this expansive wondering Yeah, and it teaches kids that the way to build, yeah. And the way to build your faith is not by nailing everything down to a right answer. The way to build your faith is by wondering. And, um, I just find that so powerful. There's a thing that we do in hypnotherapy, which is, uh, use a hypnotic metaphor. And, um, I have a lovely book called, uh, I think hypnosis scripts or something like that. That's just full of stories mm-hmm. and they're all, they're all written, uh, in conjunction to like, Oh, for somebody who wants to quit smoking for somebody who's depressed for somebody who's this or that or the other. And you can write your own. You and actually, I think the best ones are when you take it and you adapt the concept to your own personal story, so that it it's about your own life. But the first rule of using hypnotic metaphors is you don't explain anything about them. You just tell the story and let it go. And um, and because otherwise, you destroy it as soon as you as soon as you explain it, it no yeah. longer functions. Right. And um and and it's hard sometimes because you want to be there like, don't you see? Don't you see? Because <laughs> they do need it is you know, and you just have to let it let it work, and uh, yeah. and then and then what happens is they come back to you and go, oh my god, my life is changing. And right. You go, and, uh-huh, uh-huh. and I think the brilliance about those kinds of stories, those kinds of parables, or is that. In one instance, the metaphor opens up one way Mm -hmm. and then, you know, five years later, the story morphs and the metaphor is completely different. Yeah. And you go, it's the same story, but all of a sudden you go, wait a minute. I, I understood it this way, but actually what's really important here is, you know, rearrange all of those pieces to fit other characters or aspects of my life and it means something completely different right um yeah so i have to jump off in a minute because we have to go to uh father's day lunch um father's day for you happy father's day thanks um by the way i'm so so super proud of you as a dad i have to say that oh thanks um i just i this has nothing to do with your skype talk but (laughs) and you can edit it out i don't care but when people asked me when I got back home, oh, how was it seeing your brother? And you haven't seen him in so long. And Christine and Logan and da 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 da. Um, I can't. I just. I had to. I was gushing about how awesome it was to see you becoming a dad, and watching how Logan is making you a dad. And it's just awesome and amazing and wonderful. And hmm. I just loved being able to see it. So that, that, that is exactly the, how Logan is making me a dad is exactly. Yes. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> yep. 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 Thank you. You're welcome. You know, I, I feel like we could probably do eight hours of this, but, of um, <laughs> but uh, I might come up with some particular question or you might come up with something that you want to say that you want in this recording, or maybe we'll do part one of, you know, a series yeah. or something. You know, I don't I, know. I'm thinking about the vocational piece just around our book. Yeah. So maybe that's a place to start. Could be. Yeah. That's that's Uh a good idea. Yeah. 
All right. Okay. Have a lovely Father's Day brunch, Thanks. lunch, whatever you're going to go do. Thanks. And, and tell Sean I said happy Father's Day as well. Because, you know, <laughs> te- technically it is Father's Day there now. It is. To, you're right. 1220. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Love you. Love you too. Bye-bye. Bye. for listening to another episode of Mysterious World. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with my sister, the Reverend Adrian Dawson. Uh, she is now a reverend in Frederick, Maryland. They moved from Baltimore and um, she's just written an interesting sermon to try to um, deal with the divide in, in political um, stance of, of her congregation. It was a very... Um, Nice sermon. You can you can find it online. Um, thank you all. And uh, remember, no matter where you are, um, that you can make your life better. Take what it is in your life that you want to create, the changes you want to make, and create positive energy around that, create a positive focus around that, and bring that horizon to yourself. Bring that light to yourself. Bring that light to others. Remember also that gratitude is a wonderful place to keep your mind when things look grim. My love to you all. Blessed be. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 